Hi, I'm Peter Santoscano, host of Citizens Climate Radio. We highlight people's stories, we celebrate your successes, and together we share strategies for talking about climate change. We do all this by hearing from some pretty surprising climate advocates. We feature politicians, preachers, and poets. Citizens Climate Radio is designed to inform you about the many ways people are addressing the causes and impacts of climate change. Subscribe and listen to Citizens Climate Radio wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Climify, the podcast that connects climate scientists and design educators together so that we can help combat our climate crisis in our classrooms. The discussions on this program are geared to help you climify your syllabi to assign projects that not only teach design fundamentals, but also can have a positive impact on our climate. This episode is brought to you by Renourish. Renourish is your one-stop online resource for sustainable design and systems thinking strategies and tools for the graphic designer. You can learn more about Renourish on their website at renourish.org, or you can follow them on Twitter and Facebook at Renourish. I am Gabrielle Minit. I'm an information designer and data illustrator, and I help ethically driven and creative organization and cover important truths and ensure stories of attention through data. And you can find me on my website at gabrielmerit.com or on my Instagram at gabmd. That was Gabrielle Merit a data visualization designer, and environmental scientist. A perfect kind of guest for Climify. I was introduced to her by one of the climate designers' co-founders, Mark O'Brien. And after taking a look at her work and talking with her, uh, we decided that we would uh, get together and record uh, this particular episode. In this episode, you'll hear Gabrielle talk about uh, her work and the importance for climate action through telling the story of data. You heard this before in season one with Gerardo Solis's episode, but what's different about this one is that Gabrielle goes into the details of how to do it. What helps tell the story of data best so that we can inspire and encourage climate action? So I hope you enjoy my interview with Gabrielle Marit. Welcome, Gabrielle, to the program. Um, season two of Climify, I'm glad to have you here. And uh, I have a lot of questions for you. So I, I do hope you're, you're ready for all of these. Nice. <laughs> okay. Um, I'm really interested in, in the work that you're doing. And I, I wanted to start there. I wanted to ask you a few questions about why are you working with data? Why are you working in the area of climate? Can you tell us more about how you got there and why you're doing that work? Yes. Um, originally, my background was in science, in um, immunology, everything, virus and bacteria and vaccines. Oh, then you're a much needed person right now. <laughs> yeah, you would have think so. I, I deserted the field a while back. Uh, <laughs> And from there, I've worked in scientific communication. So scientific communication is about writing, almost translating scientific papers, research papers to the normal public. So for news media or, you know, press release towards the journalist. Um, and when you work with words in scientific concept, you often realize that it would take you longer to write all those paragraphs to explain a concept. 
um, than if you were just designing it in like a quick mm. diagram. So I started looking at what are the way to explain, you know, conceptual molecular biology, for instance, but also starting with data about epidemiology, for instance. So how do we do nice graphs that journalists can understand quickly or, you know, general audience can, you know, quickly understand and appreciate. Um, and so that's kind of how I fall into data slowly but surely. It's called information design as a whole. Because really, it's not so much about the data only, but also anything that's just purely informational uh, and sometimes qualitative more than quantitative. I mean, you still need words, right? When you're looking at... You do, at, yeah. Yeah, a <laughs> yeah, concept, you know, and climate change is a lot of concept. It's not just right. data part. It's also just primary concept. Uh, how does, you know, carbon is in the air and, and all that stuff. Uh, why climate? Um, I guess this is kind of a hard question. <laughs> yeah, I mean, maybe it's self-explanatory, but maybe not, right? I know. Uh, I think I was always interested in science, and that's definitely part of the science field. But also, I was raised in the countryside, and so I had this appetite for, you know, trees, and we always have animals. And I was, I became vegetarian quite early on, because when you see the animals you're about to eat, and you grow up with them, you have this different approach. So I think there was this education around respect of nature and connection to nature and also when it comes to data there's not i mean there's plenty of data but i was mm. interested in data that connects to human beings and really when it comes to climate um it's really just the emergency of the century so it's like it's everywhere you cannot talk right. about anything without talking about climate so i think this is how that's how it worked out so it was a lot of yeah. my work involved climate science and even viruses going back to your beginning mm -hmm. Uh, there's a lot of research about how deforestation can release viruses that we don't even know about into our um, into our lives, right? And yeah, so, no, definitely. More and more, we're gonna have zoonic disease. So diseases that is that something you worked animals. on too? Did you did you research that as well? I didn't work on that when I was doing a bit of research. I was working on cancer and oh, uh, yeah. immune defect people that don't have all the immune system. Uh, that was a one when I was really junior at the time uh, mm -hmm. in the lab, but uh, not too much, but I mean, it's such a fascinating topic. I think when you like science, you never stop looking at it. Yeah, for sure. I mean, um, this is one reason why I had you on is just this mix of design and science. And so I'm, I'm wondering, I, I think your work matters a lot, but I'm wondering how you tell other people maybe uh, the clients you work with or the people you work with, why does your work matter? Does my work matter? Sometimes I wonder. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, a work, I, I really see ourselves, and I'm going to say we, because there's not just me who does information design, but as sure. translator of information. Um, so we really help convey ideas and concepts and you know, all those data to anybody in a way that's visual. And it's important because I think it's really important for us to understand the world we live in and what we need to do to, mm. in the context of climate, what we need to do to preserve that world. Um, there's something about taking informed decisions. Like right now, we need to understand completely the impact of our action at the individual scale, but specifically for the people who are taking decisions, those people are not doing the research. It's two different groups of people so mm. my role is to really help connect those two groups to people who are studying climate and studying all the consequences of climate change and helping people whether it's a general audience or policymakers, to understand how do we translate this this science into like effective solution um 
you know, effective solution to, to, to do something and address the problem. And, you know, and in terms of like general audience, I think my work is not so much about, you know, helping them take decision because it's not much you can do at the individual level that actually is impactful for climate. Um, but there's something about the topics that get the most attention, get the most funding. So mm. the more we allow the people about the specific thing they should actually fight for, the more likely it's going to be funded and the more the higher impact it's going to have. Yeah, that makes sense. Have you been finding uh, or have any good success stories from all this work you've been doing? I don't know. It's, you know, it's so, it's such a funny question because I get the like, how do you measure impact? And we don't know. Like, I think yeah. we first, the impact of a work, even as anybody, climate science and all this um, strategy, it's going to take years, probably. Uh, what I'm seeing is in, I think there's a, what's great, I listen to Philip Data is the more there is, definitely the more people are aware and are interested in data. And I think that's really important that it fully understand the complexity of it. Um, do we have success? I don't know. It's, you know, there's enthusiasm around it. Like that's the big question, yeah. right? Does it work? Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know. I'm hoping it does. There's a, there's a great article, if you've seen it, in the, uh, the Guardian uh, about the 10 slides that changed um, the primary minister opinion on climate change. Oh, I change. did see that. Yeah. And it's ugly slides, by the way. Like if you. They're really you, ugly. Yeah. They are horrifying. <laughs> and I'm going to bet that actually it's not the slide that changed in mind because they were really bad designs. So we both yeah, they it. were. I mean, they were directly screenshot from scientific papers, which is why it's a problem when we, uh, but I'm, I'm going to bet that the storytelling on top is what made, what, you know, he suddenly had a like bulb moment of like, you reek out like, oh, now I understand why we have a problem. So it wasn't just the data. It was some sort of message that came through to him. Do you remember what that message was? Because I don't. I mean, I, I think he had this idea that is really common that like, he didn't fully understand that human the humanity right now is driving the global warming. There, there has been in history across millions of years of uh, this, you know, peak of heat across. But like right now, we are like speed hundred compared to any of this mm -hmm. big. This is what we can adapt, and we see this, you know, crash of the ecosystems, yeah. and that's fully driven by by human activity. And I think he hadn't fully understood that. Hmm. And I think it takes, and a lot of people have that sense of, okay, it's happening. I think now most people agree that it's happening, but not everybody agrees that it's human activity related. Still, a lot of people believe that it's just happening because it's a natural cycle. Yeah, that's unfortunate. Do you, are you finding, um, or uh, what, what are your thoughts about just the, uh, the idea of data changing people's minds on climate? Do you think that works or, or are there other things needed to, to really push them over? Um, I think, I guess the easy answer is no. I don't think no. data visualization by itself is changing people's mind. Uh, I think we can, there's two groups that you need, when we think about social change theory in general, you need to think about several groups. There's the people that are already like activists and like convinced and almost only data viz because they already know what to do. They're pretty informed. They're going to look for the research and data by themselves. Um, there are the people that are like, um, fully what we call resistors. So those people you right. cannot convince because they're already on the other side, like opinion side, and you're not convincing them with science because it's an emotional reaction that they have. Mm. Uh, and then you have um, the fence-seaters. Um, and the fence-seaters are people that are like living at the boundaries of those of like, I'm not sure what to think about this subject. Um, so we don't change people's mind. We help them lean to one side or another. Um, that's one way to see it. There's yeah. that. Um, but also I think 
I think overall, we know that bringing facts to people is actually, we think fact convince people, whereas actually it's the emotion they have in relationship to the fact that helped them change their minds. So oh, I see. It's, it's, they have a fundamentally personal relationship to data and science. So we, we have to integrate data visualization as, a, as part of the story around climate and included it with other skills like writing, photography, reporting, individual stories about people affected. Um, and that's the way you actually get people to start reflecting and maybe changing, you know, their position around specific topics. Uh, but just throwing facts at people, and we've seen that during COVID, is not efficient. It just no. doesn't. It actually has an opposite reaction. And this is why there's a push almost against raising awareness without driving action. So you need both. Obviously, you need both. And storytelling from what I heard you say, the data has to be wrapped in a story. I think so. I mean, I, I, I mean, I think so. I, yeah. That's what I'm watching. With, <laughs> that's so. what you're doing. <laughs> but yeah, I think we need to, and I think it's well done nowadays. And it's, it's, a, it's a really it's integral, an integral <clears throat> part of like, how do we tell the stories? And we have to put this information in, but as itself, it just simply doesn't work. Because there's even science around that. There's research papers about how people have approached a chart, not about like, how good it looks. I mean, it helps. Okay, we wrong. Sure. Yeah, we'd like <laughs> uh, but, to think that as designers. <laughs> it does help. All right, there's yeah. definitely a bit. But there's, for instance, people, there's a, a research paper by Evan Beck and he went into rural America and he showed, uh, <laughs> he showed those people <laughs> in rural America different graphs from different types of sources, right? He saw yeah. them blindly, like without knowing the source. And then he also did some where he showed the source, the, like where did the database came from? Um, and obviously the source affect how people see it. So if it's from the New York Times and you're on the extreme right of the political spectrum, you just reject it altogether. Like it's like, it's not happening. It's, it's, even though it's a good data, mm. it looks great. It's like, they're going to, you know, fully discard the data and say it's a bad data. Like they're going to rank it lower. And a second, a second fact that's really interesting to me recently is people will get caught up on thing that the, he asked them what's the best, pretty much which one do you like the best and which one do you find the most informative, et cetera. And What's really interesting is that people would get caught up on like personal facts that they can find in the data. So for instance, if the theme is about alcoholism and they have an uncle that may have been affected by alcoholism, they like, they uh. think this chart is the best. And some people would see the same chart, but the title would be different. For instance, if it's say, um, South, South Carolina has been affected by extreme weather, they think this chart is better than the chart that says, the U.S. has been affected by extreme weather. And then there's like all the point and South Carolina is in there. So they really, they have a complete personal attachment of like, does that concern me? Is it about me? If it's about me or some, something I know or someone I know, then I'm interested and I think it's a good graph. Um, yeah. But if I think the source is not what I like, then I don't care about what it says. Now, I wonder too, with that, not only that, would context or context of the visuals help? So culturally um if you presented a data some data that you designed to that same audience but it was visually related to cultural phenomenon there do you think that would even help it connect better with them i think so i mean i'm a i'm having a complete assumption it's not measured we have very little literature and research on how people interact with we know things like you know things like misinterpretation of graphic and things like that but we have very little interpretation of like because beautiful is such a hard concept and what's culturally similar is undefined so it's actually a it's like the merging of 
measuring visual impact in like social, you know, almost like, yeah, society research. Anyhow, it's, it's, I don't think we have measurement on that, but my assumption personally, the way people approach it in general is that it needs to concern them. And there's also something about, I think the idea of make a, making a discovery yourself, mm-hmm. um, and that is research on, it's called tripping over the truth. Tripping and, over the truth. Yeah. Tripping over the truth. It's a concept that, uh, and I can't remember the research, but it was a nonprofit that was trying to convince people, I believe, I believe in like Central Africa to use the bathrooms, mm-hmm. uh, but they were, they were used to, they, they had brand new bathroom that had been built for them, but it had, they, they hadn't explained them how to use it. Well, like, you have to use this now. You don't have to go outside anymore. Uh, but they like didn't even care much and they use it for like the water because it's good water, right? Uh, other yeah. problem of like what we, anyway, what we provide. But what was interesting is that instead of telling them you need to use this bathroom because it didn't work, uh, they were like, what if we try to make them realize that what they're doing, which is, you know, paying and all this stuff in, in their own field next to the agriculture and where they have food is a problem. So they would take those people where they go because it's kind of like a common area where they all, you know, go do their own little business. And they're like, would you, they would, I think the social researcher went and like took water from like the soil, they put a little soil in water and were like, can you drink this water? And the person from the village were like, well, no, because it's gross, <laughs> right? And yeah. he was, and like they had, and he made them realize through emotions, which is kind of shame. And, and also he just made them realize that they can use those bathroom and there's a reason why they should, because then they can actually use those fields and it won't be contaminated anymore. Um, so there's this thing about people realizing on their own. Uh, and I think it, it goes through it, it, like a personal interaction with the data and also this idea of not lecturing them, but just yeah. bringing information in like a very neutral way. Yeah, I think that emotional part is super important. I heard it in the first season of this podcast with a couple of people who were in, actually in Louisiana, uh, New Orleans, and um, somewhere else in Louisiana. But they both experienced these catastrophic storms that they had not experienced before. And afterwards, they thought, wow, that was that was worse because of our actions that led to the warming of our planet Mm -hmm. right so i could definitely see emotions impacting um people who are on the fence do you find that uh the people you're talking about that might be swayed are on the fence uh that's that that's that demographic you mentioned i think so yeah i mean i think anybody can become a fence sitter i think if you really set in your way and you decided that you don't care it's a bit different but i that's not the majority of people the majority sure. of people is just floating around and being like, I don't know. And it's really <laughs> hard. You know, the narratives around climate change are really focused on Westerners and also like white people and where, you know, but like white people is a big category for it. So, yeah. so yeah. you know, sometimes we were like, we should all make progress and like cut or, you know, get an electric car. We're like, not everybody can afford an electric car. Mm-hmm. Uh, what if you need to drive to work? You can't bike everywhere. Some people can, some people can. And I think we have those like narratives that I focus on. Californian, certain Californian population that may be a bit, you know, that bit wealthier than some others are also located in California. But because of that, it affects the story differently. And we can have a rejection of like, well, you know, I don't want to hear about those stories because they keep blaming me for this, but there's nothing I can do about it. So, you know, they just Mm -hmm. reject the whole story and they're all together where this is why we have to have local stories. And focusing, for instance, for them, or like Louisiana, explaining them that you have catastrophic climate disasters 
because of climate change, because of the human action, instead of t- talking to them about the big trucks they're driving. Yeah. So what I'm hearing so far, if I'm deconstructing everything you've said so far, it's data visualization wrapped in a story and local. Yes. That's the most effective. And so make I wonder, <laughs> make it very personal. So with make that personal, personal part, I took a class, um, I think right before the pandemic about um, social influencing mm-hmm. and they gave examples of different cultures. And so I'm wondering too, is it not just the source of the information, like where the data came from, but also the person who delivers it. So in the case of maybe some communities, the local pastor is an important person, um, depending on the culture and might be um, a chieftain, right? Um, what are your thoughts about, about like the person who's showing the data? How much no, does absolutely. that matter? I think it matters more than a anything. Almost. I think of it often about just my relationship with my own um, you know, close friends and family. Mm-hmm. Um, like my grandparents, are, they're 80 years old. They live in France. Um, they have this relationship with the idea of uh, being eco-friendly. That's very difficult because they obviously, being older and having been born in another century pretty much, uh, yeah. they, <laughs> they have this, you know, they're leaning on the right side of politics and, and influenced by what they're seeing there because, you know, they belong to. But at the same time, they also are very empathetic to people in general, and they have a big attachment to countryside and nature because they, they were raised uh, they were raised there. And for instance, my grandmother keeps talking about eco-terrorism. Eco-terrorism. Yeah, so, you know, people breaking things <laughs> because of ecology, which I think is hilarious. But for her, it's like a subject, you know, she's seen it in the news, at TV, and her real subject is TV is, you know, she believes it. Um, and... But at the same time, she's worried for the bees. She loves the bees. Oh, good. Uh, and the bees are disappearing. <laughs> she ran something somewhere that the bees are disappearing. So she's really sad. And because of that, she's starting looking at why are the bees disappearing? You know, and that leads to an open conversation. And suddenly I could talk to her about how, you know, it's related to the fact uh-huh. that there's less flowers and there's less trees and they have less space in cities in general um, to like actually eat and leave. And she was like, oh, that's so sad. So... What can I do? And then suddenly you have, you know, a grandmother who used to be completely resistant to anything related to ecology, looking forward to like do something. So it's really about that. And it comes from me, obviously, but even before I could have talked about it because my approach was wrong, you know, starting the lecture. So yes, I think people like sometimes like you can approach them and you can only know how to approach them when you are part of this community. True. Yeah. It's finding that common ground with people you trust that trust you. And then being able to tell the story in a in a, an emotional, impactful way. Yeah, we solved it. Like, what do now? I mean, we should be able to fix everything. <laughs> I mean, it's funny because you you would meet people that are in the field and cannot talk to their own family about what they believe in when it comes to climate. You mm-hmm. know, and that's because maybe they're approaching it wrong. They're trying to like lecture. I mean, I really think that we are also very much lecturing the individual and not having the empathy yeah. around the situation. So I don't lecture my parents about eating meat because they've been raised this way. They literally don't know what else to do. But yeah. I'm like making my own, potentially bringing vegan food at, you know, family dinners and 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 let them taste it and see if they like it, you know? And then slowly just, if they want to ask questions, I'll talk to them about it. 
Um, but I won't, you know, shove the data down the road. <laughs> no, that's a good strategy because I, I'm not vegan, but I, uh, I'm vegetarian and uh, I have brought vegetarian uh, food to family events, um, to events with friends who I guess were a little bit like skeptical. I mean, this was years ago. There, these, there's less skepticism, I think, nowadays than there was like 10 years Not ago. Not if you come from France. <laughs> Not, no, it's cultural then. It's cultural. <laughs> it's then. very cultural. <laughs> okay. So, you know, France is definitely a very meat-based, mm-hmm. meat-based culture, a lot of, a lot of Western Europe. And yeah, it's just a matter of like them trying it and it gets them over that like fear. Is it fear that like, why, why are they against it? Um. Yes, I think there's something about also it's an identity crisis of my identity is doing something wrong. I know, see. There's a bit of like, I, I, I mean, I said there's some research on it, um, but there's a bit of like this shit. The, this example of it is a very good example of like why we cannot convince people to stop, even though they, it's good for your health, it's good for a lot of reason. Alice cut off for Winston, so like the, you know, red meat, which is the, the worst for comment and, and the worst for uh, your health. Right. Um, but yeah, I think I think there's like this again, this judgment that comes with it, and it's actually a crisis of identity. In France, mm-hmm. not eating meat is like makes you not French. Like I'm, and I I'm also vegetarian. I still eat cheese from that diamond egg, but it's a problem, like quite literally for people. Like, like what do you mean you don't eat the national dish? You know? <laughs> yeah, it's very like um, sort of national pride, I guess, at that point. Yeah, exactly. Like we have those dishes that I, I think worldwide famous, and it's raw meat yeah <laughs> so it's hard to to really yeah you're like rejecting your own identity when you mm-hmm. when you when you move away from from that i'm sure that's the same case in texas for instance <laughs> i mean i lived in texas i lived in three different cities in texas one of which was austin i did not experience the skepticism to vegan and vegetarian there but i mean dallas fort worth when i lived there it was steakhouse after steakhouse and that's where we went I mean, that's yeah, actually I mean, also that's what's available. This also yeah, that's what's there. That. That's yeah, what's yeah. there. And actually, that that was the city, in fact, where I decided I should become a vegetarian was when I was in Dallas, huh. Dallas, Texas. It was just a, it was a health thing at first. Red For meat. a lot of people, I think, and yeah. this is why this is why you can approach it different ways. You don't have to talk about climate whatsoever. So like my grandmother, I don't even say the words climate to her because she would get triggered. Um, so I talk about the beats. Bees. Yeah, that works. Work. I mean, this is, that's something that I read um, that the U.S. Army was doing. They would talk about sea level rise. They wouldn't talk about climate change, but that's how they got a lot of, um, sorry, Republican senators to agree to some specific components of funding that they wanted was to deal with sea level rise. Yeah, it's so inter- and this is why I think data bees is so related to other skills and like people think it's just the idea of visualizing data and the graphic itself but it's about the legend it's about the word we use and what's right. that meaning for different people and emotion related i was just looking at studies from uh, i think yale's university about the relationship to methane and mm. when you talk about methane people think greenhouse gases and and pollution but if you talk about natural gas which is 90 percent methane people yeah. are like this is good because they've been trying to think natural gas is a good thing. It's called natural gas. 
Right. You know? <laughs> That's a branding thing, I'm sure. Right? It's a branding thing. So let's reverse it and, you know, let's use that. Those They've used those terms to tweak the, the truth. But can we, can we reverse that psychology and maybe avoid certain words in our, in our visuals and in our, you know, design? To actually go around those like emotional feeling attached to specific to to specific you know words and interests of formulation. Well, we're going to get into the rebranding of climate change and sustainability in the next part of the show. But first, I'm going to pause just for a minute to take some uh, break uh, to play some of these commercials that we have. We'll be right back. Where do young designers see themselves at the intersection of climate change and innovation? And how can we teach that intersection in the classroom? Designers are problem solvers, capable of imagining solutions for a more sustainable future. We have a bigger role to play in all phases of the design process, not just the beginning. My name is Rachel Cifarelli, graphic designer, recent college grad, and part of the Climate Designers EDU team. And after graduating, I realized today's classrooms tend to skip over that universal side of design. So if you're a design educator, I want to hear from your students. Help set in motion the first ever project that centers students at the intersection of design education and climate change. I want to know what your students think about sustainable design, how they see climate change impacting their future careers, and what even comes to mind when they hear the term climate design. Send your students to climatedesigners.org slash edu slash new wave survey to take the five question survey or sign up for an interview with me. Help me inform a new wave of design education, one that teaches every designer how to be a climate designer. Do you want to help design a better world? Start by subscribing to Evolve CPG, a podcast featuring the purpose-driven entrepreneurs, executives, and consultants behind the most impact-driven brands in the world. You'll learn how innovative leaders are leaning into their purpose, how better-for-the-world brands are scaling positive impact, and how the product industry is solving some of the world's biggest problems. Be part of the evolution. Find Evolve CPG wherever you get your podcasts and visit evolvecpg.com to learn more. Okay, we're back. Um, Gabrielle, uh, you just touched upon something uh, prior to that break here uh, about uh, branding, uh, specifically, I guess, um, with the word climate change. And that's something that, that's a question that for me uh, came from conversations in the first season of this podcast uh, from our guests uh, and from some of the listeners as well. And I want to ask you that question. Uh, first of all, um, how do we rebrand climate change and sustain sustainability? Do you think that's possible? Do you think that's needed? It depends how we define rebranding, I guess. That's true. That's true. <laughs> how do you, how would you, def, how would you think about that term? Um, you are a designer, so that's something that you're familiar with. So if that's the context you want to look at it, or do you, or is it more of the science side of things? No, it's, it's an interesting term because I think when we think brand, we think, at least to me as a designer, I feel visual designing. So, you know, when you think climate change stability, green, green, natural things, things that feels very LA in my opinion. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it's interesting. It's a good, like, why do we have this aesthetic? Um, do we need this aesthetic? Again, like it comes down to what you were talking about. Like, do people culturally relate to things differently? I think so. And I think we need to integrate. And I think we're starting to see it. Um, 
we need to see design that is closer to what people relate to. Again, this idea of like what they mm -hmm. are used to and what they, they like. And that might not be that super minimalistic green aesthetic, or that might not be that super urgent, bright neon yellow green that we've seen around that, you know, for to talk about urgency. Maybe that's right. not that at all. Maybe it's messy. Maybe it's really colorful and full of, you know, textures. Um, I think there's a lot of that that's really important that we need to consider. Again, it's like, I, I think it there shouldn't be also one brand to climate change sustainability and design and that is design. Uh, I don't think there should be one way. I keep saying there's no one way to do design and there's definitely right. not one way to do data visualization. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think that's important because you learn that through your work. And so if you, if someone were to, if we were to rethink how we're communicating climate change, we can't just say it in one, one universal message, apparently. Yeah. Culturally, it needs to be local. So different. <laughs> It's culturally, it's emotionally, I, I really think it's a personal way of, you know, interacting with, with images. I mean, you see it, even that you go to see a movie, you come out and it's like people saw a different movie sometimes. <laughs> yeah. You're like, this was so sad. And the person next to you was like, oh, I feel so good. It was like, so reconforting. I don't know, you know, <laughs> it's like. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think it's even, you know, with movies now, it's even more extreme there where people have been used to streaming right they're at home they're wearing whatever they want to wear and that's how they're enjoying something they watch and then they're going to the movies and i've seen people bring their blankets their mm -hmm. sweat you know their slippers and smuggling food and drink and maybe even fall asleep so <laughs> but why not i mean it's yeah. an interest it's interesting the context of what we present is really important i think mm -hmm. when we think that's my problem, personally. I think my work consists mainly on digital media, to be honest. Mm -hmm. Like, I've had some print design uh, for people who receive the news print. Today, I, I still work for this industry. Yeah, I've done work for a technology review journal, for instance. But a lot of it is digital. And all, of course, most people see things on the digital. But I'm not sure that's the way systematically. I'm actually pretty convinced that we... We may be going the wrong way when we do everything digital, when we think campaign for climate change. Interesting. Um, this generation, like my grandparents, who are more on TV still today, or might be more interested in receiving leaflets still, like they just they look yeah. at the mail. So, it, and it's a bit reverse of what we're thinking of, you know, I think we're looking at young generation and it's very important. Um, but maybe there's others that should also receive things differently and are completely isolated. I'm even thinking of accessibility. Not mm -hmm. everybody can access the web. So for multiple reasons, like financial reason and also just simply like visual impairment. Yeah, no, you're totally right on that. One of the students I had this past semester was working on a program, uh, communicating for a program called Illinois Solar for All. And it was dedicated to providing free solar on homes and condos to people making under 40,000 a year. So uh, individuals and then families was like 50 or 60. Don't quote me on the families part. I don't remember, but what she did was she patterned, um, her solutions after what the affordable care act did when Obama, um, Obamacare essentially. And that the people they really wanted to reach weren't really on social media. They weren't looking at digital. They were still getting television channels mm -hmm. and so they she put a lot of her energy into radio and tv ads 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's great. And we forget sometimes. I mean, uh, and I'm thinking specifically designer working in like big design studio, like myself sometimes working. Yeah. Because <laughs> we think digital, we think social media, we think TikTok, like we think all the stuff that we've seen increasing in the newer generation. But we forget that there's fast and then first, there's not the entire world that had access to those platforms for multiple reasons. Yeah. And also even within America, a lot of people still don't have internet. Like it's that silly or they're not on social media. Because, you know, it's just not the generation or they're just not interested. So how many people are we missing in this conversation mm-hmm. that just simply don't have access to this? Uh, yeah, for them, agree. And even the bigger layer, I'm thinking it's great. We're doing campaign to reach out to policymakers. I don't think policymakers are on social media so much. No, no. I mean, you, you mentioned get, earlier, yeah, the rural um, on the fence or don't believe it um, individuals, they're probably not on Instagram very much. Yeah, mm-hmm. no, I mean, I, no. I don't. So, and it's funny because most of my, a lot of my personal work is on Instagram. That's yeah. again, that's my, that's my audience. I'm actually trying to aim very much for that audience. But uh, yeah, there's a real, there's a truth to that. And and I'm thinking, you know, politics going to Washington, I can't imagine. They don't have time to hang out on Instagram either. They get brief. Um, so how do we make it easy for the people making the brief? Again, they're only reading mm-hmm. the brief. They're not even making it. So the person accessing the brief need to have quick access to data in a way that's, you know, super fast, super easy for them to print out, to literally hand out Got to it. the representatives. So you really need to know your audience, right? I mean, this is one of the first rules of when you're starting a design project is know your audience. And so, yeah, I mean, I've taught so many classes where the students involved in the project want to make a difference, but their solution ends up being like another app it's like where, where, yeah how do we stop this as teachers like what? <laughs> it's, yeah, it's not I'd, always the case that i'd be interested to see how we can integrate the idea of going to ask people for opinion we still today do things I mean, even myself a lot of research online and that's very helpful yeah but even for me i think it's a it's a i'm missing a lot of that part of just like talking to the people that actually either are behind the data or are, are going to receive the data and ask them how they receive, yeah, the mail, like how do they, how do they get information? And mm-hmm. I think we may be surprised and maybe that's how we do it. Maybe that's what, instead of giving brief to students and then them whatever, be like the first stage is you actually have to meet someone in person. Yeah, that's huge. Like being able to know the people you're talking with. Mm-hmm. And put aside your assumptions on how they come yeah. to the information. Yeah. And uh, obviously, if you're part of that community already, like you said, that'll be a lot easier for you because you're one of the people you're trying to reach possibly. But if it's an audience that you're not a part, our community, you're not a part of, you should meet them. Have you been able to do that in your work, been able to meet people that you're trying to reach that you don't know a lot about? Not really. And not directly, especially COVID happened. And, you know, oh, yeah, get, yeah. Um, but However, there's also a way to do it without going to like even interview people yourself, which is having proxy. So can you find representative of those people mm-hmm. um, and like follow them and interact with those people that may be, you know, there's voices to not all, there's voices that represent, they're not obviously not always perfect. They don't represent all opinion in one group, but can you find those people and really merge yourself in, in, in how they see the world and, and you might see it differently. I think it's really important. I think that's, that's the key. It sounds really hard. We're like, wait, you have to go to a community and ask. But maybe there's a community leader that's more accessible. Maybe there's a community leader that's on Instagram. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, you mentioned policymakers and you mentioned people in the communities. <clears throat> and I'm wondering, 
because I've heard both things here that you say both things that um, obviously you have to cater the, the data visualization and the story to each audience differently. Which audience, if there is a more important audience, do we need to reach more with this type of story? Is it the policymaker? Is it the vast amount of people in the world that really could create action? I think, I think it's whoever you want. Obviously, policymakers are at the end of the day, um, mm -hmm. the people that need to make changes. Like I didn't, but the individuals can have an impact on them by voting, by putting pressure right. on. So it, I, I'm actually really convinced that we have an issue right now because most people either are focusing only on general audience and that's an issue because it's not enough. We also need policymakers and, you know, all our founders, investors, like we need to put pressure on yeah. those people everybody, too. everybody. But exactly, which is why I think everybody has a space in climate, like fighting climate change. It's not, not everybody has to be an Instagram famous designer communicating on climate. Not everybody has to you can have an impact in-house. Like, I, I really think so. We yeah. tend to promote like those big designer making big projects. And and uh, I guess somehow I'm somewhat part of it sometimes where I work with those big, you know, names. Um, but I actually, I'm pretty convinced that sometimes being an in-house des like designer for nonprofit can have way more impact on, mm. you know, on on like the actual change. Or I, I actually think that the people making the brief for policymakers are probably the most powerful people. Because wow. they literally decide what information goes in front of their eyes. Like they're the one filtering. Back to words again. Maybe right back to the beginning. Maybe we need mm -hmm. to be <laughs> writing more. We all need to be writing. I think everybody who does design should write. And I'm I'm a I terrible agree. writer. I, I'm I'm absolutely terrible. But I actually think copy is such a despise. Like it's a secondary sure. element. But I actually think it's very, very important. And we should be really aware of like learning how to write and what to write for who. I totally agree. And I've invested so much time over the past, I don't know now, eight years, maybe more, and just trying to be a better writer. I'm, I'm actually starting to enjoy writing more than design because I don't know, there's something more powerful sometimes just about words. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I agree. Although I'm definitely more of a speaker than a writer. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're doing, you're doing a great job here today speaking. So I appreciate that. <laughs> Um, what you were just saying, though, um, inspired me to think of a design project. And let me know what you think. Um, essentially, is it possible to take the same bit of data, important piece of data, and package it in a story to, to uh, different audiences, policymakers, um, insurance, uh, business, um, rural Americans, and to see how effective it is in, in each one of those cases. And could it, you know, create some sort of cul culminating force, <laughs> catalyst for change? Uh, something that just came to mind. Yeah, I mean, yes, I would, I would love to see that happen. I would, I would love to see an exercise like that where, where we take um, one data set and like the exercise would be to present it to three different audiences. And like, I think the format mm. would be completely different. I think the data, within a data set, the data you would show would be completely right. different. 
Um, I'm actually making an exercise right now. I'm working with, am I allowed to talk about it? I don't know. I think so. I'm working <laughs> the the Smithsonian Museum. By the time we release this episode, they will be Yeah, yeah we'll be put this there. out last, right? <laughs> yeah, I won't talk about the content, but we. I'm working with the Smithsonian Museum on a scientific paper they're about to publish. And they want to also, they have the scientific paper with database, but they also have a, a communication strategy. Um, the same content, right? Complete different audience. Like, how does that look in scientific paper? We have restricted you know, colors, restricted, you know, restricted attention, uh, restricted format, because it's going to be printed and on the web. So all this stuff. And then on the other side, we have communication to what a general audience that's a bit more fluid. Right. So how do we present that in a way that's way more digestible, where we won't have a formatted legend? Can we tell a story? If it's on Twitter, can it be mm-hmm. looking, but like, how do we, you know, adapt it to mobile? So you can actually have the exact same paper, but the audience can completely transform the project. So it's yeah. a great exercise. Yeah, so it sounds like if I if if someone wanted to teach a class and use it as a project, right? You'd have to have a pretty big data set so you could narrow it down to the very uh, niche cultural components that you could reach these different audiences. Yeah, it doesn't need to have a be a big data set though. Like you could be no, I don't. I think people tend to think big data all the time. Yeah, and I, I think, know it's just like a catchphrase, um, right? I'm in love with the small data. I'm a small. I'm like you have three data points. That's enough to make a graph. You know, there's like this simple data, like, I mean, even showing, I made this simple graph uh, of just showing um, carbon equivalent, um, you know, production of carbon emission, carbon emission equivalent per country um, in like the last year versus like cows, I mean, meat and dairy, Um, you know, and the meat was prevented with a little cow. But anyway. It's a simple graph and probably seen it before. And it's like five data points, literally. Yeah. But it's a very efficient one. You know, it's just like, here it is. is. It's as big as, so the production of carbon by, you know, meat and dairy production is as big as like China emission in a year. It's, it's massive. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's kind of, it's very simple data. Like there's not much to know about it, but I think you can present it way differently. Like the, I put a cow in there. There's literally a cow, and it's pretty floating colon, which is forbidden by the database community. Usually, you don't do pretty, but I do. <laughs> you um, don't. But it was for like it was made to be projected on the screen in a, a big screen in a in the in the COP twenty six. So people mm-hmm. like uh, like leaders of the industry and people would actually walk through. And you cannot catch people with a chart. I'm sorry, people won't look at it. Like it's not really interesting. A big cow with flapping ears, because it was animated. It might work, you know, right. so, so you just have to think of it. Like, it's actually, it's a, it's a really big, it's a big question of like, sometimes we also have to bend rules to, to make something that, you know, is attractive or is different or catch your attention or you can relate to. Um, yeah. 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 So it's, I think it'd be the power of small yet cute data. <laughs> Probably, you know, I, I want to bet that if you put a cat anywhere, it'll work better. <laughs> Cats and puppies. They're like the number one thing on YouTube that people watch, right? It's like. Exactly. Like, can you do that? Or, I mean, there's a lot of things like TikTok, for instance, is like, it blows my mind because we all about designers, we all about pretty design. I mean, mm-hmm. I personally am. I love pretty design. Uh, but yeah. TikTok is all about like raw, like raw video, like people mm-hmm. doing like having those like weird angle, bad lighting. It doesn't have to be like elevated and minimalist. Authentic, right? Authentic. And it works. It works because of it, because it's so authentic, because it's very personal. And I, I think there's something to be explored there. Not that I'm not that I'm a nope. huge fan of TikTok, but I'm no, yeah. <laughs> I'm the same way because I've been thinking about TikTok based on 
a lot of people who've been telling me like it's a really interesting platform to try to educate people because there are a number of TikTok, um, I guess, influencers now that have been able to do a really good job of educating people to action, right? And I'm wondering, like, can data be used on TikTok in an in an engaging way. Have you tried that or do you know a good example? I haven't tried yet. I'm a little scared of TikTok. Yeah, me it's too. It's also a lot of work and I'm like one of, the, I like tiny, I mean, if my work is very- So much work. I like my work to be really clean and I feel like raw, raw footage is like the, the opposite. opposite of what I it's like to opposite. do. <laughs> so I'm gonna be like, oh my God, I don't know. <laughs> but I, I actually think I'm like looking at it like very closely because I think somebody needs to look at it. There's, there's, and again, it's a specific audience of younger generation Z, I think, yeah. that's how we call them now. Yeah, yeah, Gen, Gen Z. Yeah, yeah, Gen Z. And I, and I think, I think there's something to be said about that. I think people really enjoy those content, and and you know, and we've seen video content doing really well even outside of, mm -hmm. of TikTok. I'm thinking of Vice. It's like one of those great examples. They do incredible video with like tape, and you know, yeah. it's nice. It looks really nice. It's a nice, obviously, footage. You know, shot from above. Like it's all. But it's always like scrappy, like people writing and, and, yeah. and tape and whatnot. And that that works because people can relate to that. Yeah, that's that's another assignment, you know, for the next semester for anyone listening. It's taking data and finding a way to engage the TikTok demographic, which would probably be Gen Z, into some sort of action, right? I mean, that's that's really interesting. Hmm. Yeah. Or like make a database with something from like your home. Like you're not allowed to use right. a computer. Maybe to do the first graph like on Excel or something, but you're not allowed to like do any Photoshop Illustrator. Like, is, yeah, you know? that's totally cool. Cause it's like, what's around you? What's local? Yeah, exactly. What's local? What do you have? What, and that's it. Like make it, or maybe you're able to have a time. Like you have two hours. Here's your graph. Like we give you all the data. Yeah. You know, and it's a simple set of like five to that point. So you, you can't go into like fancy things, but you know, how would you make it if you had to like show it to somebody? Literally, you sit in yeah. a park and you have to show it to someone. How would it look like? Totally. Is it potty? You know, like potty, potty <laughs> on a, on a lip? Is it like a, a pottery sculpture with tape? I don't know, but. Could be a lot of things. This is all bleeding into my last question for you. This is, this is perfect. You've, you found a way to do that. So thank you for that. And. Uh, I'm keeping one of the same questions that I have from the first season to all my guests. And that is um, essentially, what would you do if you were in the design educator's shoes and you were asked to teach a class or a project um, on, you know, as a climate designer, um, what would you do? What would you assign these students? Maybe it is TikTok, right? <laughs> Maybe it is. I think I would... Um... Like what we were talking earlier, I think I would invite them to do something local. So we'll start with that. It needs to be local data. Local, um, perfect. It would be local and um, they would have to meet the people. I think that'd still be a good exercise of like meeting the people. I like that. And, and, and I think they would be forbidden for, of having the format as anything digital. Uh, maybe it's an image, but it needs to be in the end. I'm going to be printed and put it somewhere sure. it, it, yeah and i know it feels counterintuitive because we all i of course we and i do a lot of my work is actually making work for social media so yeah. it might be ironic but i would be interesting to see like how would you approach data about let's say racial inequity present this to a representative in Beverly Hills mm. you know like how a would good you do class that? field trip to LA yeah like do you i mean 
<laughs> yeah, I'm here. <laughs> so it's easy. But that's it. That's a really good question. Like, yeah. how do you convince them that they have to be more caring and careful, you know, with police brutality and treating, you yeah. know, people going for homelessness with more respect? Like, how would you bring that up to a representative? Would you send a leaflet? Would you send it by mail? Would you come and actually deliver it? Would you go through maybe the assistant? Would you mm -hmm. call them? Uh, you know, would you send a long email? I, there's many ways, but I would be, would you like find a massive, you know, massive, I don't know, do it on like a cardboard, like riot type and just sit in front of the office? Maybe. Yeah, more activism, right? Maybe. I mean, there's, there's a hundred thousand ways. So it's really, it's, I would definitely keep it local and, and try to think impact. Like what would be the most impactful and avoid the social media campaign of like general audience. Like let's say right. for a very specific person, like who is the person you're trying to talk to? Yeah, so you'd let the student decide that. Like yeah, you set I would, a parameter, right? Yeah, I would set parameters and let them decide whatever they want. And they're not allowed to do anything about personal carbon footprint. <laughs> That's <laughs> forbidden. <laughs> That's been overdone, right? That's way overdone. And, and we're not feeding in the narratives, you know, promoted by all the fossil fuel industry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, we're running out of time here. It was actually, um, this conversation went super fast. I had a lot of fun, Gabrielle. And... Um, I think there's some key takeaways I have from this, and that is cute, small data. <laughs> yes. Hyper yes, local, data. hyper local. Yeah. I, I actually, it's a great way to, to end this because I think it also scary when you look at big data set and I want to encourage anybody around that bumps into a pie chart, like something silly. So actually, like it's data should be part of design. It should be part of reporting, right. and it should be made by anyone. And so it doesn't have to be big. Does it can be reserved for like hard data analysis? Yeah, but anybody yeah. can make a bar chart with three columns. Yeah, I agree. And going back to your um, story uh, in the Guardian about what's it, the Prime Minister of of England was convinced by really ugly graphs. Right, but it was local, and there was a story attached to it. Yeah. So imagine, I think that I do. yeah, imagine if they did a better job with the ugly graphs. How many more people <laughs> we could convince to get on board with this? Absolutely. All right. Well, before you go, is let's revisit where we can find uh, your work, Gabrielle. Can you let us know where we can find you on on social media and online? <laughs> I'm everywhere. You can type my name in Google and it'll pop up. There's not many people from, that have the same name. So that's easy. Um, yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah, it's the easier. Otherwise, Instagram, uh, gab.md, I'm gab.md. And I'm also on Twitter uh, on the data. How do you call the little slash at the bottom? The underscore? The underscore? Underscore, yeah. Okay. Data underscore soul. Um, S O L? But, yeah, S O U L. A soul. Okay, soul. Yeah, soul. yeah. I, I, the other one was taken already. Somebody took my name. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Goldie, it's probably easier. <laughs> Data soul, love it. Yeah. All right, well, thanks, Gabrielle. Um, it's been a pleasure having you on and um, look forward to hearing more about your work as it develops. Thank you so much, Erin. Thank you. This podcast is written, produced, and engineered by me. Designed by Boshul Rashik and Mark O'Brien with music by Casual Motive. Thank you for listening to this episode. I really hope you enjoyed the first half of season two of Climify. We're going to take a, a few weeks pause here, our mid-season break, to get our house in order as the semester is upon us. School has started. 
And there's a lot of things that I need to do for that. I also have a few guests in the second half of the season that I need to interview, edit, and prepare for you. I'm excited about them. Uh, and I do hope that uh, you're having a great start to your semester or just a fantastic day altogether. We'll be back again in a few weeks, and I look forward to hearing from you over on our Instagram account or at the Climate Designers Network. Thanks for listening to Climify. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. To catch all the latest on Climify, you can follow us on Instagram at Climify Podcast. Climify is part of Climate Designers. Learn more at climatedesigners.org slash edu.